0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Breast cancer affects one in eight women in their lifetime and is the second leading cause of cancer deaths among women.
2: October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We'll talk about breast cancer prevention and treatment with a Mayo Clinic expert. The
3: evidence that continues to come out year after year on the role of exercise, maintaining a healthy weight after menopause, and moderation of alcohol.
1: Also on the program, after a breast cancer diagnosis, should a healthy breast be removed as a preventative measure against future cancer risk? We'll have the latest recommendations on contralateral prophylactic mastectomy.
2: And five questions you should ask your surgeon before going under the knife.
1: All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: Tracy, according to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, there are some 220,000 cases of breast cancer diagnosed in women every year in the United States. Now, that means breast cancer will ultimately affect one in eight women in their lifetime if they live long enough. If you get old enough, it's sort of like men and prostate cancer. <laughs> Sooner or later, you'll get it
2: oh, if I you live long enough. I don't like the thought of that. Yeah, but to that end, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. The annual campaign Started back in nineteen eighty-five to increase awareness of the disease. Substantial support for breast cancer awareness and research funding has helped to improve screening, diagnosis, and treatment of breast cancer.
1: Well here to discuss those advancements and what's on the horizon is Dr. Sandy Apruthi from the Breast Diagnostic Clinic at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program. Good to see you. Thank Always you. nice to have you here.
3: Thank you and welcome. I'm glad.
1: So uh, we, let's talk, first of all, about the the latest guidelines for mammography, screening test for breast cancer, because it seems like over the past decade or two, uh, there's been a little controversy. Uh, there's been some some changes, and breast cancer, just like all cancers, uh, part of the key to curing it uh, is catching it early. So what are your latest recommendations for women in mammography?
3: Well, um big factor that uh, impacts a lot of women is this concept of dense breast tissue. And where you're going to know that is either it's your own clinical exam or your physician tells you at the time they're examining you have very dense breast tissue or you notice you have a very lumpy breast on your own self-awareness. But the real way to detect density is by having a mammogram. And if anybody wants to know what is my density um, and how will that impact my future frequency of screening and in and, and how... Um, often I should uh, be having it based on my age. We really are now concentrating on getting that information from a mammogram. So it's almost like your first baseline mammogram is gonna tell you what your dense pattern is. The reason this is important is if you know you have dense breast tissue, are you a candidate or eligible for more supplemental screening? Should you have your mammogram more frequently or should you have a more um, sophisticated mammogram that gives you better uh, uh, interpretation because you have the dense pattern and now we're we are in this era where we have a new 3D tomosynthesis mammogram that um, is considered to be more uh, effective in women with dense breast tissue? And there are now questions about, should we be doing additional screening with ultrasound through dense breast tissue? So these are the uncertainties a lot of women are asking. First, is my dense tissue on my mammogram significant enough that I need different format of screening or a different type of imaging technology? And then how frequent?
1: So this is really, this is interesting because this is really the first time I have heard you tie recommendation with regard to how often you ought to have a mammogram or or other tests with a dense breast
3: yeah and actually there was just recently a publication that just came out this past week that now has considered that the dense breast pattern may be more of of a recommendation to screen more frequently every week every year where a woman who has a less dense breast pattern could go every two to three years
1: so what's your recommendation so let, let's uh what percent of women by the way do have uh, uh, enough density in their breasts that you have to be concerned
3: so density is age dependent so if you are a younger woman who's still premenstrual um under 50 you're going to have dense breast tissue just by nature of having estrogen and being premenstrual as pre-menstrual you menstrual or
2: premenopausal
3: uh, premenopausal okay sorry correct yes um what i meant before menopause gotcha. they're still menstruating and so these are the women who are going to have more dense breast tissue as 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 you age, your density gets replaced by fat, just by, um, again, less estrogen as you get older. So as women get into their 60s and 70s and 80s, the dense tissue decreases and they Hmm. become more fatty replaced. So... Are you more likely to have, when you ask me how many women are going to have dense t- breast tissue, we're going to see at least 75% of women under the age of 50 who are still premenopausal have dense breast tissue. Wow! Whereas women over the age of 50, as we get older, 25% will have more dense breast tissue.
1: So let's separate the two groups. Uh, non-dense breasts, how often should women get a mammogram and when should they start? And then... Uh, women with dense breasts, and and okay. y- you mentioned that there are degrees of, of density, so you grade them, don't you, right. on, on, the, so on the mammogram? So
3: a radiologist will be able to tell you the degree of density, and, and they're using a grading, you know, this is a dense uh, breast tissue. Instead of used to saying 75% of the breast tissue, now they're saying this is a more a grade two or three more, or we can say an A, B, or C, or D density. So a D density is a very dense breast, where an A is more fatty replaced.
1: So, the mammogram recommendations non dense breasts and dense breasts. Mm
3: That's what I am starting to see. And with this new publication that just came out, highlighting now that understanding your dense pattern may predict what you're more likely to benefit from a screening interval with. And it makes sense that if you have more dense breast tissue, you should be screened more frequently because the challenges of interpreting the mammogram having um, maybe every year is better than waiting every two years through the dense tissue to be able to detect if there's an abnormality. Where a woman with a, a less dense breast pattern could go every few years.
1: So tell us what the guidelines are uh, for non-dense breasts. There
3: aren't any strict guidelines. Right now, when you describe guidelines, I have to tell you, American Cancer Society tells Mm -hmm. women to start screening at age 45 and go every year. And then by age 54, you can decrease to every, every two years. U.S. Preventive Task Force tells you to start screening in your 50s and go every two years. So we are all over the place, and it's really become more of a personal values and a discussion between you and your doctor. And that's what actually all the guidelines, interestingly, get down to. It really is a decision between you, the patient, and your provider. What is the best interval for you based on your personal values?
1: So we really obviously want to know what you and the Mayo Clinic what, say, okay. but, but what you're saying is that there are no clear-cut guidelines anymore. Absolutely. It's between patient and physician, right. and then the two of you decide together what's appropriate. Right,
3: and in general, what we are recommending at Mayo, we still recommend that um, by 40, start your screening every year, and it may change every two years, and I may base that again on density, I may tell this woman, you know, you have a less dense pattern, we can go every two years. Those are conversations we need to start having now more than what we did before.
2: What about self-exams? Is that more important or less important if you have dense breasts? Is that harder to perform a self-exam if you have dense breasts? it's actually more important if you
3: have dense breast tissue to know what normal for you is and if you're from if you're familiar with your breast by just your usual activities of daily living and you know you have a lumpy breast your familiarity will help you when there is an abnormality to know that this needs to be further evaluated so there is value in breast awareness but we're going away from the true breast self-exam technique and that no longer um, is recommended by any organization it's rather about about a self-awareness and the women who i tend to educate in my clinic when i see them about dense tissue is tell them you really are the one who should know what normal for you is because if there's a thickening or a change in the size of your breast or there's some area that has a little more of a lumpiness that you didn't notice before that's when you need to get prompt evaluation and get that checked out
1: but there was some organization recently a few years ago that said uh forget breast self-exams and that was
3: the technique forget the technique of doing the lying on your stomach on your back and then doing it in the shower and then standing up and examining your breast the actual technique of performing it is what was told to women isn't really helping us it's actually creating more false positives or unnecessary abnormalities that went to check when they went on to check them were nothing more than just dense breast tissue or fibrocystic changes so we got away from the actual technique and now it's more of an awareness And that's in the context of more their showering, dressing, you know, and their
2: usual own awareness of their own body. Instead of saying, you know... Um, Three days after my period ends, I perform this instead of that's what you don't do anymore. We don't want to go into that.
1: All right. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Our guest is an expert on breast cancer, Dr. Sandy Apruthi. We need to take a short break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about genetic testing, the risk factors for breast cancer, and the latest treatment
2: recommendations from a Mayo Clinic expert. And we've got a myth or matter of fact. Only women get breast cancer. Only women get breast cancer. We'll find out when we return. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae. It
1: is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, October and our guest, a breast cancer expert, Dr. Sandhya Pruthi of the Breast Diagnostic Clinic, Mayo Clinic, Rochester. So we've talked a lot about dense breasts, and uh, you have indicated that there is now a correlation with regard to women and, and dense breasts and how often they ought to have screening mammograms or possibly other tests. And that's a decision that is made between a consultation with your physician and you two talk it over and decide what's best for you based on a whole bunch of different factors but one of which is breast density. Correct. All right before we go on to talk about risk factors and treatment and genetic testing how about the myth or matter of fact?
2: Myth or matter of fact Dr. Pruthi only women get breast cancer. That is a myth. How often I just, I just still can't believe it how often do you <laughs> diagnose men with breast cancer?
3: So um, about three thousand men will be diagnosed a year in the United States with breast cancer, and it's often because
2: they felt a lump. I just think it must be so far advanced before a man would notice that. Oh, um, stop. actually,
3: I'm just not, saying. <laughs> not. <laughs> okay, not right. actually, they are the ones who can feel a lump under their skin, and when you think about the amount of breast tissue they're examining through, um, men feel lumps at a smaller size. And, that makes sense. Um, and they are the ones who will say it's often cuz they hear this message about women and lumps that they tend to check their own chest and bring that to their attention that there's something different here
1: yeah sort of interesting what is it there's about as 10th as as, as a common in a man as it is in a in a female mm-hmm. but it could be a nasty disease in a male just like in a female
3: absolutely there
1: are men who die of breast cancer and
3: really men right? can get cancer that um spreads metastatic it's not um any different it's the same biology mm-hmm.
1: so how about an update on genetic testing so a woman has been diagnosed with uh breast cancer she may or may not have a family uh, history how do you decide who ought to have genetic testing and what does it really tell you
3: So it's really important as a provider that you get a good family history. You wanna know who was diagnosed with breast cancer, mother, sister, daughter. We call those your first degree relatives. We also wanna know if there were second degree relatives. And then what was the age of diagnosis? Were they diagnosed before age 50 or after age 50? Sort of helps cut off if it's a younger onset first-degree relative, that has more significance in potentially being hereditary than someone who has an older age individual like a mother who gets breast cancer at 80. When we get a history like that where there are multiple young affected relatives um, over many generations with breast but also if they report ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, younger family members with prostate cancer, these are um, red flags to be thinking of a potential hereditary predisposition to breast cancer.
1: And so for those women, you'd say, we think you ought to have some genetic testing.
3: We need you to talk to a genetic counselor. Always start Mm -hmm. with the counseling first. A genetic counselor's job is to counsel on the pros and cons of testing, to decide if this family even meets the criteria to be considered eligible for testing by taking this pedigree, this family history, and then using models that they use in the office to calculate what's the likelihood this family is going to present with um, a hereditary breast cancer Cancer risk and then offer testing with the discussion about the pros and cons
1: yeah so positive or negative what does it really tell the individual in her family
3: so if you find out you are positive for a hereditary mutation it carries your risk at much higher than someone who's your general one in eight or as you age so these people could have a lifetime risk from anywhere from 40 to 80 percent of developing breast cancer that's important to know if you carry the mutation you're going to want a much more uh, significant uh, surveillance pattern what are you going to do to watch me from an early detection and um, what are we going to do to prevent breast cancer because i'm at so much higher risk so these are conversations that um, having that information really will now change your prevention and early detection options
2: There's been so much awareness, I think. Breast cancer awareness has definitely come a long way in the last 10 to 15 years, but has that helped women's odds or increase their survival rates when they are diagnosed with breast cancer?
3: If you're diagnosed early, yes, your odds are much better. Our treatments, our advances in um, understanding the biology of the tumor have really improved the survival rate, so we're seeing significantly improved 95% survival rate because we're catching cancer and treating the cancers that we detect with the right medications.
1: Now, when you say early... Do you mean confined to the breast or confined to the breast and lymph nodes? Or what do you mean when you say early?
3: So early stage cancers are stage 0, 1, and 2. So it's confined to the breast. Late stage is uh, anything that's now spread outside of the breast. So it could be the lymph node or elsewhere.
1: And then the survival rate goes down significantly. Right.
3: But with treatments, these women do very well as, as as another opportunity to say that treatments have advanced for also late-stage breast cancers.
1: So you want to find that lump before the cancer has had a chance to spread anywhere. And it, it can spread to the lymph nodes or it can get in the bloodstream and basically spread it anywhere, correct? Correct, yeah. Treatment options, has anything changed? I mean, is it still true that if the tumor is confined to the breast, your chances of survival are just as good if you have a lumpectomy and radiation as opposed to a mastectomy, or has that changed? No,
3: that's actually very well said that, that those treatment options are equivalent when we bring those into discussions for early stage breast cancer.
1: And what about the breast cancer that has spread to the lymph nodes? Are you still removing the lymph nodes at the same time you do the uh, mastectomy or is radiation an option for those women and then who gets chemo
3: so that's exactly what they would be using here is more of a treatment pattern that includes chemotherapy potentially radiation but less so now um, is extensive surgery of the axilla of the lymph nodes more the treatment is focused on the chemotherapy and the radiation
1: chemotherapy a lot better than it used to be
3: that's what women are saying it's better tolerated we're seeing um, uh, better medicines to help with the side effects so yes it's better tolerated than it used to be
2: and what can be done to reduce the risk of getting breast cancer that's the key i
3: am so impressed with the evidence that continues to come out year after year on the role of exercise maintaining a healthy weight after menopause and moderation of alcohol
1: Do you think the fact that the obesity rates in in the United States, and of course among women also, have gotten so high that there's definitely a correlation with the number of women getting breast cancer?
3: The research is showing a correlation with obesity, not only for breasts, but other cancers, but it, it, it is there for breasts. So yes, I think there's a correlation
1: hasn't hadn't the research also shown that once you've had breast cancer if you reduce your weight and n- become not o- obese that your chances of recurrence are less Absol- also
3: yes and There, again, is the importance of exercise. Maintaining a healthy weight can reduce recurrence.
2: The final question I had was about the age of people, because if it's more serious, the younger you are when you're diagnosed, is it still common to diagnose a woman who's in her 70s or 80s with breast cancer? Yeah, coming back to the longer you live, that
3: just your age alone, you can still see one in eight women get breast cancer just by living to their
2: 80s. So there's not just kind of a window. It's if when you make it past a certain age, you're still the risk is still there as you age. All right.
1: All right, Dr. Sandhya Pruthi, an expert on breast cancer from the Mayo Clinic Breast Diagnostic Clinic. Thanks so much for being here.
2: You're welcome. Thank
1: you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio: After a breast cancer diagnosis, should a healthy breast be removed as a preventative measure against future cancer risk? We'll have the latest recommendations on contralateral prophylactic mastectomy
2: and five questions you should ask your surgeon before going under the knife. Coming up: the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your
0: Mayo Clinic Minute. 50 million. That's how many people in the US suffer from chronic pain. Many turn to opioid painkillers for relief.
1: The evidence is not at all clear about the efficacy of these drugs long-term for chronic pain. Mayo Clinic
0: pain management specialist Dr. Mike Hooten says what is clear about these painkillers is the risk associated with taking them.
4: Um, but also a related problem of accidental overdose deaths.
0: Morphine, oxycodone, and hydrocodone are commonly prescribed opioids. Dr. Hooten says they are very effective when used short-term for pain, for example, after a surgery. For long-term use...
1: There are a smaller group of studies that may show some benefits in certain highly selected groups of patients.
0: But for many cases of chronic pain, Dr. Hooten says non-opioid pain relievers, combined with other therapies such as stress management, can help people manage pain and maintain a high quality of life. And in other news, let's talk about Botox. Should you use it and is it safe? All forms of Botox injections approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for forehead wrinkles are intended for people 65 and younger. Beyond that, the medication may not be as effective. Mayo experts say Botox is safe to use long term and you can stop using it at any time without your skin looking worse than it did before you started the Botox. When used for cosmetic purposes, medical insurance does not cover Botox treatments. Now, Botox injections use forms of botulinum toxin to paralyze muscle activity temporarily. This toxin is produced by the bacterium that causes botulism, a type of food poisoning. Botulinum toxin injections block certain chemical signals from nerves, mostly signals that cause muscles to contract. This temporarily relaxes the facial muscles that underlie and cause wrinkles, including forehead furrows. Studies show that people who get the most benefit from the injections are 65 and younger. Now, that's not to say, however, that people older than 65 can't or shouldn't use Botox, but it is important to recognize that the results may not be as effective as they are for younger people. So, for older adults to get the same results as younger patients. Botox should be used in combination with facial fillers injected into the skin to soften the wrinkles. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, And I'm
2: Tracy McCrae.
1: Tracy, when a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, she's likely to face some very difficult decisions, one of which has to do with surgery, and that is do you have a lumpectomy and radiation or a mastectomy? And, of course, the other issue that always comes up uh, is what about the other breast?
2: Should a healthy breast be removed as a preventative measure against future cancer risk? This is known as contralateral prophylactic mastectomy or CPM.
1: A position paper recently published by the American Society of Breast Surgeons recommends against CPM for average risk women with breast cancer in one breast. Here to discuss CPM is the paper's lead author and Mayo Clinic breast surgeon, Dr. Judy Bowie. Welcome to the program, Dr. Bowie. Nice to have you.
5: Well, thank you, Tom. A pleasure to be here.
1: So there are a lot of women diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, obviously fearful of uh, the future, what's involved with regard to the treatment, who... uh, I know want the other breast removed just so that, even though there's not cancer in it, just so that they don't have to worry about getting cancer in that breast in the future, but the American Society of Breast Surgeons says not so fast.
5: Yeah, I think the real um, message behind this position statement from the American Society of Breast Surgeons is really focusing on making sure that patients are making that decision based by fact, um, not just uh, based in fear and that all patients uh, receive the data, the numbers, and a balanced discussion of the risks and the benefits of CPM. I don't think it's so much a blanket, no one should ever have a CPM, but I think it's important that all of these women that are considering this procedure know exactly what they are signing up for. And really, I think the key message here is that contralateral prophylactic mastectomy doesn't make you live longer. And that's been known for a very long time. Um, And it's really important that patients understand that. So removing the other breast is not going to make them live longer because their risk of developing breast cancer in that other breast is actually reasonably low. Isn't it the psychological piece of
2: it is what it addresses more than if that's the case. It's the just peace of mind then if women are saying, well, if you're going to take one, just take them both.
5: Yes, and that's definitely what a lot of women in the clinic say. They say, if, I, you know, if I'm removing the one breast, please just go ahead and remove both. And we do a lot of bilateral mastectomies. We do a lot of therapeutic mastectomy on one side and contralateral prophylactic mastectomy on the other side. And for many women, it is the right decision. Um, but it's just really important that the woman bases that decision in fact and really considers their options. What is the option? Could they have a lumpectomy and radiation? Could they have a unilateral mastectomy? Why are they choosing to push the button on the bilateral mastectomy?
1: Are there certain women for whom it truly is indicated? Now you're saying that this it, it's not necessarily indicated in women of average risk, but there are, are there must be some women for whom you do recommend a contralateral prophylactic mastectomy, right?
5: Yes, definitely. Um, you know those women who have a much higher than average risk of breast cancer development, um, especially those patients who have a strong family history or a gene that predisposes to breast cancer development, such as. most people are commonly familiar these days with the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene, or potentially um, some women who potentially had radiation to the chest wall at a young age. Those women are at a much higher risk of breast cancer development, and when they develop cancer in one breast, it's very reasonable to consider removal of both breasts. And what, so what you just, those things you listed off, that's what makes someone not average risk. What is average risk? Average risk is really your the most common woman who comes in who has a breast cancer, doesn't have an overwhelming genetic predisposition or a strong family history, and is, is kind of your common breast cancer uh, patient with a newly diagnosed breast cancer um, in just the one breast with nothing that really labels them as a high risk on the other side.
1: Tell us about why you, you wouldn't do it and wouldn't recommend it. How do you talk to a, a woman about what those might be?
5: That's an excellent point, Tom. I think, uh, you know, as a surgeon, you always want to discuss the risks and the benefits of any operation. And um, obviously, removing the cancerous breast has potential complications. Bleeding and infection are probably the main two that we talk about. And if you're doing uh, bilateral mastectomy, then essentially those bleeding risks, bleeding at the site of uh, the surgery or an infection at the site of the surgery is essentially doubled. Because you could have a bleeding uh, complication on the left side, And if you remove the right side, you could also bleed on the right side. Similarly, with infection, you could get an infection on one side, or you could get an infection on the other side. So those risks are doubled. Um, In terms of the risk of being under anesthesia and the risk of something like having a stroke or a heart attack under anesthesia or developing a DVT, those risks are not... A blood clot. A blood clot, exactly. Mm -hmm. Those risks are not very much increased by doing a double versus doing a one-sided mastectomy. So it's mainly the surgical site complications that are doubled because you have two surgical sites rather than one.
1: Do most women elect Reconstruction now, and what's the most common form of Reconstruction?
5: Well, interestingly, some of the other work that we have done has really shown that a lot of the interest in CPM seems to be somewhat associated with the increased availability of breast reconstruction. Mm. So for many women, if they're having a mastectomy on one side and they're having that breast reconstructed, often the best symmetry can be achieved by removing both breasts and reconstructing both breasts as opposed to having one natural breast and one reconstructed breast where the symmetry may not be as ideal. And so that's an important aspect that we discuss in this paper, and and definitely we've done our own research that has shown that the availability of immediate breast reconstruction, the huge advances that we've had in breast reconstruction techniques over the last five to ten years, seem to almost have pushed the envelope on the double mastectomy more. Um, You know, the truth of the matter is a woman can undergo a bilateral mastectomy with an implant-based reconstruction, be in the hospital for less than 23 hours, and have a relatively smooth recovery and go home.
1: And then you never have to worry about getting cancer in the other breast, even though you say that the chances of it are pretty small for an average risk woman.
5: And and that's exactly the point of the paper, is is that we're not going out there and saying no one should have a double mastectomy for cancer in one breast, but that every woman should seriously reflect on what is it they're trying to achieve. And if the woman says I'm doing this because I want to live longer, they need to be redirected and say, this isn't a maneuver that's gonna make you live longer. Or if they say, I wanna do this to decrease my chances of my cancer coming back, removing the other breast doesn't decrease your chance of the cancer coming back. It decreases the chance of developing a new secondary cancer in the other breast. But if your initial cancer is an aggressive cancer, you're not impacting the risk of that coming back by removing your other breast main thing then just seems to be managing the patient, the fears, um, the concerns that patients have. Exactly. It is what does the patient want to achieve? What is the patient willing to go through? uh, Make sure they're well educated in terms of not just the survival data, the recurrence data, the alternative options. How else can we achieve symmetry if we have to remove one breast? And this really varies. I mean, if someone has a small breast size and their reconstruction is gonna be larger, you're looking maybe augmenting the other side. If someone has very large breast size, then they might be looking at reducing the other size to match the reconstructed breast. So talking through all of those aspects, talking about sex life after breast cancer diagnosis, talking through surveillance, how are you gonna do mammograms on the other breast, um, and talking through their fears and what's driving them to remove their other breast. It's, it's a really complex matrix of what is driving the patient, giving them as much information as possible. And this is really a classic example of shared decision-making with the patient.
1: Boy, there's a lot of things to consider, aren't there? But the interesting and the final bottom line is that for a woman of average risk, contralateral prophylactic mastectomy does not improve her survival. Correct. Dr. Judy Bowie, breast cancer surgeon, Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tracy. We're gonna take a short break. When we come back, five questions you should ask your surgeon. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: You know, Tracy, getting ready for surgery can be stressful, anxiety-provoking, overwhelming. You've been there. I you have. Remember. Well, to help ease your fears, it's important to educate yourself as the patient on what to expect before, during, and after the procedure. And asking your surgeon the right questions can help you prepare for an operation and improve, improve the outcome and get you home sooner.
2: Here to discuss preparing for surgery and the five questions to ask your surgeon is Mayo Clinic colorectal surgeon, Dr. Robert Seema. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sema. Thank you. Sir.
1: All right, Dr. Sema, I'm the patient. And uh, I want to know what are the from your standpoint. What are the most important questions that I ought to be asking?
4: Well, really, it comes down to uh, questions about your surgeon and where your surgery is going to be performed. Surgery is not just a single event with a surgeon. That's that's the key aspect of it. But that care takes place in a system of care. So there are things you need to understand about the hospital where it's happening and the surgeon, and also what your role is in that place. So I usually say about my surgeon, is this the right surgeon for me? And that involves, is this person board certified in that area? The board certification is an unusual thing is that it represents that you've done extra training, but it also represents that you've done extra training in the right field. So just because you're board certified If you're board certified as a general surgeon, but you're going for a vascular problem, there are separate boards in vascular surgery. So you may want to ask, is this something that you do a lot of? Are you board certified in vascular surgery or colorectal surgery or cardiac surgery? Or for certain specialties in orthopedic, they have separated, not necessarily boards, but certifications. And so those are things you want to know because it may be appropriate for your surgery to, to, to seek out someone that really does that as a specialty.
1: Isn't it important also to ask, is, uh, is surgery the best alternative? Are there other al- alternatives?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's another big issue is whether or not um, rushing into surgery is the right thing. There's a lot of evidence now for certain orthopedic issues and certain spine issues, maybe even urologic issues, that maybe surgery isn't the right option, or at least not right now for you. Um, It might be better to do a course of physical therapy. It might be better to take a watch-and-wait approach for certain diseases. And so um, you need to have someone who gives you a balanced perspective on, is this the right thing for me at this time? And, and sometimes the answers can be surprising. It used to be for prostate cancer, for example, uh, you would say, well, it's a cancer, it's gotta come out. Well, as we've learned more about prostate cancer, that's becoming more and more debatable. It depends on how aggressive it is, how old you are, when you present, what your other comorbidities are, what, you, what your quality of life you want. So those are issues where your surgeon has to sit down and take a patient-centered view, as opposed to just a surgical view, and say, what's the best thing for you right now in this circumstance for this disease
1: yep so you ought to go over the options do you think it's also fair to ask the surgeon are you the best person to do this
4: well if you're having the operation i think it is um because that really shows that you are looking for someone that's going to perform the best they can for you now some people may feel a little uncomfortable about that but you would if you were looking for other things in your life Uh, buying a home, uh, going somewhere, buying a car, you would seek out input uh, on whether or not that's the right person or the right uh, product for you. I think surgery is somewhat like that. I mean, yes, there are other components that you can not select, Uh, you know, bedside manner, are those important? Those are issues that help you in your recovery. But I think really looking and saying, are you the right person for this specific operation? Have you done enough of these? Do you have experience in this? Are you board certified in this? Those are all important questions that do come to the very nature of the doctor-patient relationship.
2: Dr. Shives, have you ever had a patient ask you that?
1: Absolutely, and you know what I tell them? If, if I thought there was somebody better than me to do this operation, I'd send you to them. Yeah.
2: All right. And, and, and,
1: and that, I think that's one of the very best things about the Mayo Clinic, is that there is no reason for me to do an operation that a colleague can do better. Huh. And so it's, I, I truly have never done anything that, uh, that I thought somebody else could do better. If I think a colleague can do a better job of your shoulder surgery than I can, there's no reason for me not to send the, yeah. you to them. Right.
2: All right, we have a list of five we have to get to the second one <laughs> we're running out of time so what is the second thing that you should ask your surgeon
4: well you know surgery is not just a simple event like i keep on saying uh it's like a, a marathon and, and for some patients depending on the procedure and so can you are you in optimal shape is really what it comes down to it just doesn't mean your heart and lungs uh, that means can you tolerate the anesthetic uh, i'm not talking about your recovery Uh, how you're gonna get up and move around. So are there things a patient can do? Losing weight, even 10 to 15 pounds, can make a significant change in a person's recovery. Uh, Sometimes surgeons are are getting more and more that they want to have the patients lose weight. Certain orthopedic procedures, they, they try to get the patients to lose weight. Certain hernia operations, they won't operate on patients until they lose weight. The reason why is not only does it help patient recover, but it also improves the outcome.
1: How about uh, smoking?
4: Smoking is always a big issue, but for most elective surgeries, the data would strongly suggest that if you stop smoking, even, even two weeks before your surgery, your recovery will be better. Some procedures and some specialties now are advocating that patients actually have to stop smoking before they do the procedure because the risk of bad outcomes is so high. In some of our cases uh, with our plastic surgery colleagues, we actually will test the patient for nicotine the morning of surgery. And if there's evidence of nicotine, we will cancel the case.
1: All right, a couple of other ones that I know you uh, recommend one has to do with uh, sleep.
4: Yeah, one of the big things as we've seen uh, both in, in our population as, as people's weights have gone up and also a better understanding of sleep is sleep apnea. If you have sleep apnea, you really need to let people know you do or if you're concerned that you might, it's good to have it evaluated before surgery because uh, there's a high risk of complications for respiratory problems in the post-op period, uh, especially if you mix sleep apnea with an anesthetic and narcotics. We've seen and had reports uh, across the nation of patients who have very bad outcomes because you mix narcotics and anesthetic and sleep apnea. So if you think you might have any of the signs or symptoms of sleep apnea, get it evaluated before surgery because uh, that could really be a problem afterwards.
2: And the fifth question you should ask your surgeon?
4: Is really, is there something you can do actively to help get out of the hospital sooner? And I think a lot of that has to do with losing weight, physical conditioning. One of the things that's interesting is some of this concept of prehabilitation that we're actively looking at at the Mayo Clinic, but it's also been documented elsewhere, is if you can get up and get out of a chair and walk 10 feet and turn around and come back in less than 10 seconds, that's a really good sign you're going to do well after surgery. But there's a lot of patients that can't do that. And the real question is, can we get them up and do something beforehand to condition them so that they can get up and move, get out of bed on their own, do those things before they have surgery so that they will have a faster recovery. So this concept of getting your body in shape, getting things set up for your recovery after the surgery is very important. And that's really where you need to be engaged with your physician and say, what will I need afterwards? Will I need to go to a nursing home? Will I need to have all these things set up? It makes that transition smoother, and we know if you have good care transitions, you do better in the long term. You know I like them all. Is surgery the
1: best option, number one? Is this the best place for me to have the surgery? Are you the best person to do it? Are you board certified? Will it help if I lose weight? Of course, the answer is yes. Does it matter if I'm a smoker? Yes. And if I have sleep apnea, we want to know that. And is there anything you can do to shorten your hospital stay? All great questions. Dr. Robert Seema, General Surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us.
4: Thank you. And that's
2: our program for this week.
1: For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs.
2: Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for joining us.